Okay, so in this part of lecture two, we're going to go through chapters eight and nine of the public law textbook, and we're going to discuss the executive and the courts. And starting off with the executive, it is probably the, at least in the, the popular consciousness, the least well understood branch of the government, although it's the one that you interact with far more on a day-to-day -day basis than any other branch. But if you ask somebody, do they have a sense as to what the courts are? Sure. Do they have a sense as to what parliament is and what it does? Yeah, it makes the laws. But, but what is the executive and what does it do? And the answer is pretty much everything else that government does. The executive is vast in Canada and carries out most of the day-to-day -day operations of government. What is the function of the executive branch of government? Well, the most simplistic answer is probably implementation of laws passed by the legislative branch. But in reality, the modern role is much more complex. What institutions comprise the executive branch of government? Well, again, there is a formal answer the executive government and the authority of and over Canada is hereby declared to continue and be vested in the Queen, Section 9 of the Constitution Act of 1867. So uh, what institutions comprise the executive branch? It's ultimately vested in the Queen. But the reality is that the executive branch is not a single institution, certainly not a single person, but a highly varied assortment of institutions and officials. And from the public law book, uh, a highly varied assortment of institutions and officials ranging from constitutionally recognized positions to entities that operate at an arm's length from the formal government apparatus but nevertheless perform governmental functions. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful but we'll unpack that as to what the executive is by thinking about what the executive does. What are the functions carried out by institutions of the executive branch? Um, the first one that's noted in the book is delegated rule making. And what that is meant, what that means, is Parliament and the provincial legislatures frequently delegate a power to make rules, to make regulations to other individuals, institutions, or bodies. So you'll see legislation, and it will say regulations under this act can be pronounced by the minister, the appropriate minister. These regulations are created through a power that is created by parliament, by the legislative branch. But these regulations are in fact created and pronounced by a member of the executive, by a minister in often in many cases. So why do legislatures delegate their rulemaking authority? Well, there's a number of reasons. One is it's, it's much faster than passing legislation to have a minister adopt a regulation. So if there's an area that requires ongoing regulatory responses, it makes more sense to give a minister the power to enact regulations than it does to have to go back to Parliament every single time there needs to be a change to the regulatory regime at all. 
So for example, imagine under the Mining Act, where you need to um, closely regulate how mines are constructed and operated. And there's a um, an urgent issue that's come up where there's a realization that a specific mining practice has become unsafe or is, is less safe than people had realized, I will ought you to have to go back to parliament and uh, pass a new law amending the Mining Act? Or wouldn't it be better for the Minister of Mines to simply be able to enact a regulation dealing with that problem? And similarly, if there is a... Um, there may be areas of great technical detail that require guidance for industry in, in, in mining or some other resource industry, perhaps. And the level of detail and the need to tweak the detail to respond to you know, various concerns may simply be an unwieldy uh, process if you have to go back to Parliament every single time to make any changes. So... Delegated rulemaking is a function of the executive, and this is the executive at the really highest level. You're thinking about the type of entities that get a delegated rulemaking power from legislation is, is going to be ministers, most likely. Maybe a tribunal will have some of that delegated rulemaking authority. But this is going to be these entities that are really recognizable as high-level government officials. Those are the type of entities that are going to be empowered to pass regulations. And regulations have the force of law like statutes, and they can have serious penalties for violating regulations, uh, including even imprisonment. So regulations from the perspective of the governed are, in effect, statutes, but they are not passed by the legislative branch. They are passed by the executive under a delegated rulemaking authority. That's the main takeaway to think about this role of the executive. So what are some other functions uh, performed by the executive branch? Well, dispute resolution is one. Parliament and the legislatures have created many specialized court-like bodies to resolve disputes. Um, if you have a dispute with your landlord, if you aren't happy with the landlord's um, efforts to maintain your building, perhaps, and you, you find that they are in breach of their contract uh, with respect to their obligation to repair and maintain, you wouldn't have to go to court. You could go to the residential tenancy branch in British Columbia, and that would resolve your um, dispute in a much quicker manner than would having to start an action and going to British Columbia Supreme Court. Furthermore, these executive branch dispute resolution tribunals can have a great deal more expertise, perhaps, like the Canadian Radio and Television Commission, I believe, CRTC, um, deals with the finer points of the broadcasting uh, industry and the level of specialized knowledge that it would take to be able to understand what is reasonable, what is needed when it comes to you know, rather technical elements of the broadcasting system 
would be beyond the scope of many judges to easily and quickly uh, be able to decide a case. So instead of having disputes go to the courts, they go to a specialized decision maker who may be able to more readily decide an issue. So that's another function of the executive. So, so far we're thinking, okay, we have the ministers and people on the high level officials who are sometimes getting this delegated rulemaking. That's part of the executive. We're having these court-like tribunals, but they're not the courts. They're dealing with specialized areas. And we're thinking about the residential tenancy branch, workers' compensation board, these types of things who are deciding disputes and they are doing so um, within a a narrow sphere, these are also emanations of the executive. Another example, another function, I should say, another function is a benefit or obligation determination. So if you apply for employment insurance, there will be a decision maker who will look at your at your application and decide if you, in fact, are entitled to employment insurance or if you apply for workers' compensation. There will be a individual who will look and decide if you're entitled to workers' compensation. If you apply for a um, immigration status, there will be an officer who will look at your application for immigration status. These people who make these decisions based on these uh, statutory schemes that allow for certain benefits or obligations to uh, accrue to people within Canada, those are also members of the executive. The individual who reviews your application and considers it and makes a decision, that is a person who's uh, a member of the executive branch of government. And then finally, another key area of executive power is in enforcement decisions. So you think about the police, the powers that they wield in our society the, the police are an emanation of the executive. They are wielding executive powers. Police powers are, are not absolute. This is probably beyond the scope of this course, but it's an important public law concept to, to bear in mind that police are ordinary people entrusted with certain powers. And if they step beyond those powers, the rule of law we talked about in the first lecture says that they have no more right to avoid the repercussions of doing unlawful conduct than anybody else does. The police powers are generally set out in legislation, although there are common law police powers, which are a topic for your criminal law course, no doubt. But the general principle is that the police are an emanation of the executive. They're not the only executive enforcement uh, division, or not the only emanation of the executive that engages in enforcement, uh, many statutory regimes have a enforcement component. So think about the Fisheries Act. That's a federal piece of legislation that deals with protecting the fish, uh, fish habitat and how the fisheries as a resource will be used in Canada. And there are fisheries officers who have a duty to inspect there's any number of inspectors who attend at buildings or farms or factories to inspect the safety or the health standards that are being upheld. If you think about a food inspector who goes to a restaurant, well, that's an emanation of the executive. 
And so when you put these roles together, you start to get an idea as to the scope of the executive within Canadian society. They make many of the regulations, or they make all regulations, but the regulations compose many of the rules that uh, govern the way society works. They decide um, disputes. There's dispute resolution. If you go and it's if you don't go to a court, but you go to something else to get a dispute resolved, you're dealing with the executive. If you apply for something, I mean, and it could be a hunting license, it could be a building permit, anything of that nature. You're dealing with an emanation of the executive, a part of the executive, a component of the executive, and whether you like it or not, if you're subject to uh, inspection or enforcement you're dealing with the executive. And it basically, if you think about any interaction you've had with a Canadian government or provincial government or municipal government official in any capacity, that person is part of the executive. His services, too, if you think about the post office, this is an executive function to deliver the mail. The, the scope of the executive is truly, truly broad. The most important thing for our purposes to think about the executive, though, is that the sources of power wielded by the executive are limited. The executive only has such powers as are given to it by statute, perhaps as supplemented by the common law. And such powers as arise under the crown prerogative, prerogative powers. So like we all know what a statutory power might look like. The common law is really not a huge focus. I say it because it is important that you recognize there is a common law around how those statutory powers will be interpreted. But fundamentally, the source of the power for the executive is not the common law. The fundamental power comes from the legislature or the prerogative powers. So what are the prerogative powers of the executive? Now, the explanation of the prerogative powers at page 311 of the book is, is fairly good. So in simplest sense, you think the prerogative powers are those powers exercisable by the crown that do not arise from a statutory grant of power to the crown. So if something is a valid exercise of crown power and there's not a statute that you can point to as the source of that power, either you know, a statute that created a regulation that is the source of that power or a statute as amplified by the common law that is the source of that power, but you say there is a power here and I can't find it in a statute, well then, the residual is, is the prerogative, but the prerogative is not limitless. So what is the scope of these residual powers that are in the hands of the executive because of their historical uh, position in the hands of the crown? Well, it, it's a bit complicated, but generally speaking, you have to look way back to get to the scope of the prerogative powers. You have to think of the powers of the crown in England prior to the legislature coming into being. So the legislature comes in and it takes over a wide swath of the powers that the crown traditionally exercised. 
but not strictly speaking all of them. And a few important powers are not subject to any legislation. And the most important probably is the conduct of foreign affairs. And this, this includes even the issuance of passports, which is a prerogative power. It's not found specifically in a statute, the power to issue passports. But more importantly, perhaps, the power to issue passports could easily be put into a statute. But the conduct of foreign affairs is a, an important prerogative power to bear in mind, the idea being that when the prime minister goes to the G7 to negotiate with foreign leaders and perhaps signs a treaty, which as we discussed in the previous class, binds Canada on the international stage, he or she doesn't do so pursuant to a legislative power. There's no statute that permits the crown to engage in foreign affairs. Rather, this is done pursuant to a prerogative power. And there are other prerogative powers that exist and that come up from time to time. And one such power is the power with respect to honors. So honors, uh, you know, titles and, and awards and et cetera, et cetera, is a prerogative power. If the, if Canada decides to issue a medal, it need not pass a, um, a statute to empower it to do so. It can do so through the prerogative power. And the case we have is a funny one. It's a case involving Conrad Black, who's a, a famous Canadian publisher and um, author and historian of a fairly conservative bent. And in any event, um, Conrad Black was, he wanted to be appointed as a peer in the United Kingdom. He wanted to obtain a, a British lordship so he could sit in the House of Lords. And the prime minister at the time, Jean Chrétien, said, intervened directly with Queen Elizabeth to oppose his appointment and said, look, Canadian citizens should not be, are not eligible to be um, given the, the honor of a, of a lord, of being appointed a lord. And Conrad Black said, oh, this is ridiculous, and brought an application for judicial review in federal court saying that, but for the prime minister's intervention, I would have received the honor and title of peer, and it was an abuse of the prerogative power to, um, to intervene in this matter at all, and the court ought to step in. And he sued the prime minister for abuse of power, misfeasance in public office, and negligence. And the Ontario Court of Appeal considered, well, what is the source of the executive power to grant honors and found it to be within the prerogative? And they described in helpful passages for you to have a look at the sources of the prerogative power, noting that the prerogatives are the powers and privileges accorded by common law to the crown. They descended from England to Canada and can be limited or displaced by statute. So that's the important uh, practical point to remember. These prerogative powers exist only so long as Parliament doesn't choose to step in and take over the subject matter over which the prerogative power exists. The most common definition of the prerogative powers is set out at paragraph 25 of that decision, and it's from Professor Dicey, who says the crown prerogative is the residue of discretionary or arbitrary authority 
which at any time is left in the hands of the crown. So the court had this question of, well, there was an exercise of the prerogative power, I suppose, to intervene in this issue of um, Mr. Black being appointed a lord. And is this something that this court ought to take up and consider? Now you hear ought to take up and consider by the court, you should think, ah, this is getting at that question of justiciability that we talked about earlier. Is this justiciable? The Ontario Court of Appeals said, well, a common law exercise of the prerogative power were not reviewable as a general rule. There was no power for the courts to review a crown exercise of a prerogative power to determine if it was lawful or not. But the court said that that's not the case anymore. It's not a hard and fast rule that never ever shall there be a prerogative power that is subject to review in the courts. But rather the question is whether it is a justiciable issue that is raised. And they say, look, there's a, a spectrum of prerogative powers. On one end, you have matters of high policy, decisions to sign a treaty or to declare war. These are not amenable to judicial review. On the other hand, though, there are prerogative powers that affect the rights or legitimate expectations of an individual. And if these prerogative powers are abused, the court says, we're not going to foreclose the possibility that you can come to us for a remedy. They say, well, what about Mr. Black and his desire to be a, a lord? They say, well, none of his rights are affected. This is not affecting his liberty or his property or his economic interests. It's just a title. It's a, it's, it involves a moral and political consideration that's just not within the province of the courts to assess. Therefore, it would, it would not be justiciable. Uh, it might have been different if there was a charter issue that was raised, but there wasn't. Uh, he was claiming you know, common law damages, and, and they said, we're not going to assess whether the exercise of this prerogative was right. After this decision, Lord Black, he is Lord Black, <laughs> became Lord Black of Cross Harbor. He renounced his Canadian citizenship, which allowed him to accept the peerage. Um, but then he was charged and convicted of fraud and obstruction of justice in the United States, and he served 37 months in jail. So there you go. Not exactly the, the lordly life that he might have envisioned when he was fighting with uh, Jean Chrétien. So that case is a fun one because it's easy to remember the facts and it's easy to you know, have a maybe a bit of a laugh at, at, um, at Lord Black of, of Cross Harbor. But at the same time, it's an important case on the point that the courts will review these prerogative powers. They're not a means to allow executive power to go unchecked by the courts if the executive is abusing that power, so long as it is not a matter of high policy that's just beyond the scope of what the courts can really properly review and so long as it is affecting the rights or privileges of an individual. The prerogative powers, what's important to remember is that they exist, they're a thing, they have this historical root, and that they um, can be subject to court review, and that they can be displaced, superseded, amended by legislation. So we're going to come back to the idea of prerogative powers when we talk about 
administrative law and judicial review and the limits on the power of the executive, which is what administrative law is fundamentally about. And what you really want to have drilled in your head is that executive action must find its root of authority, either in legislation or a prerogative power. Okay, I'm going to turn now to come back to the question of the Crown and its role within the public law framework. If you remember from the last component of this lecture, I talked about the Crown's role within the legislative process of granting royal assent and through the Governor General summoning, proroguing, summoning and proroguing Parliament and um, giving the speech to the throne to open a session of Parliament. But the Crown also has a role within the executive branch of government. Um, many powers are formally vested, even by legislation, in the Crown, specifically in the Governor General, who is the Queen's representative, of course, in Canada. And furthermore, the Crown is a legal entity. It's a very important legal entity that can own land, that can sue and be sued, and that can generally operate with many of the same powers, although additional privileges, as any private individual may be able to. And so the crown as a entity operates as an important part of the function of the executive branch of government. But of course, it is not the case that the queen herself or even the governor general is actually exercising independent discretion and authority. Rather, this all comes back to the principle of responsible government that I mentioned earlier, and the principle of responsible government requires that such exercises of power be done on the, um, be ultimately traceable to someone who is responsible to the electorate by an elected official. So, for the Governor General of the of Canada of the of the country, she acts upon the advice of the Prime Minister and Cabinet. And similarly, in the provincial framework, the Lieutenant Governor acts upon the advice of the provincial Cabinet. So, what is this Cabinet? Um, well, it's a committee formed out of the Queen's Privy Council for Canada. So just we'll, we'll take it one step at a time. So the Queen's Privy Council for Canada is a broad group. It's a ceremonial designation primarily. And the Privy Councillors are appointed by the Governor General. And it consists of cabinet ministers. So the cabinet is part of this. But for, furthermore, it consists of a lot of people who are not in cabinet. They're part of this Queen's Privy Council. Former cabinet ministers, the Chief Justice of Canada, former Chief Justices, former Speakers of the House of Commons, former Speakers of the Senate, former Governors General, and distinguished individuals. It's a mark of honor to be made a member of the Queen's Privy Council for Canada. People like Maurice Richard, a great hockey player, is a member of the Queen's Privy Council for Canada. So there's the honorary component of it, but there's also the ministers of cabinet the, who are the ministers of the government who make up the committee of the Queen's Privy Council that is cabinet. So think about the ministers of government 
as constituting cabinet. So the whole Privy Council, including the ceremonial members, meets rarely for special occasions, ceremonial occasions like consenting to a royal marriage, which is something that still happens. But the committee of the Privy Council, that is cabinet, uh, meets much more regularly and exercises substantial power within the government. So when legislation gives any power to the Privy Council, what they mean is the committee of the Privy Council. What they mean is cabinet. And you'll also see this referred to as the governor in council. The governor in council technically means the governor general acting upon the advice and direction of cabinet. Cabinet members are generally ministers of the crown responsible for various portfolios. So you'll have the Minister of Justice, the Minister of Environment and Climate Change, etc., etc. Cabinet meetings are held behind closed doors and the minutes of cabinet meetings and even the materials that are put before the cabinet members in those meetings are kept confidential for 30 years. Documents and information subject to cabinet confidence are generally protected from disclosure. And the reason was explained in a case of Babcock in Canada, which we discussed briefly, I believe last lecture, where the court recognized that those charged with the heavy responsibility of making government decisions must be free to discuss all aspects of the problems that come before them and to express all manner of views without fear that what they read, say, or act on will later be subject to public scrutiny. So I mentioned this earlier. It's the idea that you need to have a free-flowing discussion within government in order to allow the decisions to be made with a, a full and, and frank discussion. But then you don't want to have those discussions and any dissenting voices or even strongly argued you know, positions against what ultimately was the government's decision to be held against those ministers who participate in that discussion. You don't want people to weaponize the internal discussion that leads to government policy. And cabinet has a number of significant powers. Cabinet proposes legislation. The governing party usually holds a majority of the seats and almost all bills proposed by the cabinet are enacted. A few bills are proposed by individual MPs, but realistically, cabinet has near complete control over the legislative agenda of the House of Commons. So again, we talked about the dilution of the separation of powers as between the legislative and the uh, executive branches. And this is another example whereby the cabinet is a function of the executive, and yet it controls the legislative agenda in a practical sense. Cabinet also appoints members of the executive agencies, the heads of crown corporations, other officials. If you're an important, high-ranking member within the government bureaucracy, your appointment probably comes through cabinet. Um, cabinet exercises delegated rulemaking authority. So we talked about that in respect of the executive functions and the idea that regulations will often be passed by a minister. Um, other regulations will directly require the cabinet as a whole to pass them. And cabinet ultimately oversees some administrative decision makers. Some administrative powers are given directly to cabinet and the cabinet delegates those powers to individuals who actually make the decisions but ultimately the decision is overseen by cabinet and there are some 
regulatory regimes that actually require the decision, an ultimate decision, to be made by cabinet or the governor in council, which in your mind you can have it as meaning effectively cabinet. And one example of that is the Canadian Environmental Assessment Act regime, which has a scientific review panel who studies the uh, a project, say, and they'll make recommendations. They'll say this, this project will cause significant adverse environmental effects, but here are the bases upon which it might be justified. But the ultimate decision in the regime as to whether a project does cause adverse environmental effects and whether those effects can be justified ultimately lies with cabinet. So it's at the end of an environmental assessment, you have a cabinet decision. So one of the prime minister's important powers is to appoint and dismiss members of cabinet. Who's going to be in cabinet significantly dictates the, the nature and the functioning of the government. And the prime minister has the power to choose who will be in cabinet, who will be these ministers at the head of the bureaucratic organizations. And the nature and justiciability of alleged abuses in the exercise of that power were addressed in the case of Georges and Canada. And to break up the monotony of my voice, I'm going to play a news uh, clip which explains the dispute as between Miss Georges and Prime Minister Stephen Harper. It seems it was only a matter of time before the Prime Minister lost his patience with Helena Georges. Today, Stephen Harper asked the RCMP to investigate serious allegations around Georges and her husband, former Tory MP Raheem Jaffer, although he won't say what those allegations are. And he told reporters she's gone from cabinet. Ms. Gurgis offered her resignation from the ministry and I accepted it. Pending a resolution, she will sit outside of the Conservative Party caucus. Georges's resignation came in an email to the Prime Minister this morning saying, the past nine months have been very difficult for me. I've made mistakes for which I've apologized. I've worked hard for Canadian women and I'm proud of my record of my accomplishments on their behalf. I, Helena Georges. Helena Georges used to be a rising star, a telegenic woman given a prominent seat for the TV cameras just behind Harper. It began to unravel last fall when her husband, Raheem Jaffer, was charged with drunk driving and cocaine possession. Those charges were dropped. He pled guilty to a lesser charge of careless driving. Then in February, Georges had a temper tantrum at the Charlottetown airport, calling it a hellhole. Then yesterday, a newspaper story alleging Jaffer had boozy dinners with business people, claiming he could get them contracts because he had an in with the Prime Minister's office. Any suggestion that Mr. Jaffer has had an open door to my office is false. The opposition parties have been calling for Georges' resignation for months and now say there are still many unanswered questions. Just 24 hours ago, the Prime Minister was saying he had confidence in this minister. And now, 24 hours later, boom, she's gone. It raises questions about the, the Prime Minister's judgment. Georges says she plans to stay on as MP for her riding that's just north of Toronto. But Conservatives say there's no guarantee the Prime Minister will even sign her nomination papers so she can run in the next election. Margot McDermott, CBC News, Ottawa. So, Miss Georges, and you hear the, the Prime Minister, I think, called her Miss Gerges. So I wonder about that. 
but Miss Georges um, sues for um, a conspiracy to remove her from office, to remove her from cabinet, as well as certain tort claims, defamation, misfeasance, uh, intentional infliction of mental suffering, and negligence. And she makes as defendants the prime minister, the prime minister's chief of staff, the prime minister's principal secretary, the minister of labor, an official on the minister of labor staff, the conservative party of Canada, a lawyer with Castles Brock, who was a lawyer for the prime minister and the conservative party at the material time. So, it, and um, Shelley Glover, a conservative member of parliament. So there's a a conspiracy alleged there's the members of the conspirators you know, named and, and alleged and the question before the court is again this one of justiciability so ought the court to review the question of whether the prime minister properly exercised his power to remove somebody from cabinet and the court said no it's a core aspect of the crown prerogative exercised by the prime minister to determine who is in the cabinet it is by its very nature a highly political non-legal decision and therefore not amenable to review in the courts it is not justiciable therefore the courts ought not to look at it is the decision so you can think of george's case the george's case as an example of the nature of this power and it confirms the source of the power to appoint cabinet members is in the prerogative and it confirms the separation of powers and that the courts are not going to look in and question the prime minister's choices as to how he exercises that prerogative power now moving on to the next idea about cabinet and about the executive cabinet is a fundamentally political entity in many ways the prime minister and the ministers are all elected members of the house of commons they make decisions that they that are going to further their political aims it's where the political power in many ways that is accrued through elections is actually used so at the head at the top of the executive branch in cabinet which you can think of as sitting at the very top of the executive branch is a highly political group cabinet however members of the executive below crown servants government employees are expected to behave in a neutral apolitical manner we, we have a apolitical public service is the idea and this can be a problem in cases where public servants wish to speak out against government policy or run for public office. So a case we have on this idea of neutrality within the public service is the case of Fraser and the, and the PSSRB. What that stands for, Public Service Staff Relations Board, I think. That's actually a guess, but I think that's right. So Fraser, what matters is... Mr. Fraser is an employee of Revenue Canada. He supervises tax audits, okay? He also is a fierce critic of the federal government's program to convert to the metric system from inches to centimeters. And I guess he says that he's not necessarily against the metric system, but he thinks it was all done in a high-handed manner, and, and this is what he's going to spend some of his time you know, fighting. So he 
attends a city council meeting. He's photographed with a placard that states, your freedom to measure is a measure of your freedom. So he receives a three-day suspension and a direction not to make public comments critical of the government. He continues his attacks against the government and the prime minister. He gets overboard. He starts calling them Nazis, etc. And his employment is subsequently terminated. Now, importantly, none of this had anything to do with the quality or nature of the work he was doing with Revenue Canada. So he files a grievance before the PSSRB alleging unjust suspension and discharge, and he loses. And the question is, well, is it, is it proper to terminate this person simply because they criticized the government in albeit a very strong manner? And the court says, yes, the federal public service is part of the executive branch whose job is to implement policy. In order to do so effectively, public servants should be impartial, neutral, and fair, but also loyal to the government. So this, this doesn't mean that they, public servants may never express disagreement with the government. Uh, that would be fine if the government acted illegally, government policy endangered life, health, or safety, or the criticism had no impact on the ability of the public servant to perform his or her duties or the public's perception of that ability. But when the criticism rises to a level where someone in the public would think this might interfere with their ability to carry out their neutral apolitical role, that is when it is fine for them to be even terminated. So it is a, a real constraint that public servants face. I worked for the Department of Justice for a number of years as a lawyer, and I was, I was well aware of the need to um, minimize anything that could be apprehended as a criticism of the government policy. Um, you can, you look at what's going on in the United States with um, Donald Trump and his you know, assertions of a deep state, deep state conspiracy or plot against him. And well, think what you may about those assertions um, in the Canadian context. If there were to be members of the executive, public servants, who were doing things to actively undermine the government's ability to accomplish its legislative objectives, now they could, in fact, be fired for doing so. That concludes the overview of the executive and its functions. And the key things that you need to take away are the scope of the executive. You need to think about it is a broad array of responsibilities that are entrusted to this executive. It includes making regulations, it includes dispute resolutions, it includes determining the benefit or obligation uh, entitlements of Canadians, it includes enforcement and policing. And in fact, these different uh, executive bodies often overlap in their uh, ability to do these various things. The same board may determine benefit or obligations, and then if someone has a problem with that, they may have a dispute resolution mechanism, and they may also make regulations that relate to the benefit or obligation that they are um, giving out. Like the workers' compensation scheme is exactly that. The workers' compensation board determines entitlements to workers' compensation benefits. It does so according to policies that it has itself set. If you have a problem with your workers' compensation determination, there's a dispute resolution mechanism that includes an appeal mechanism. It's 
quasi-judicial. There's decision makers. Both sides can make submissions. And then there's written reasons given. So you can see there how a number of executive functions all uh, are come to bear in one arena through one entity, the Workers' Compensation Board, WCB, in, in uh, British Columbia. And furthermore, we talk about enforcement, and WCB can send investigators. They can send investigators to, to trail you to see if you really are disabled and can't work, and they uh, inspect workplaces to make sure they are safe. So it's just an example of how all these executive functions can be uh, done in one context by one group. So you want to think about the breadth of the executive. Basically, anytime you interact with the state and it is not a court and it is not a member of parliament or a senator, you are dealing with the executive. And then you want to think about the sources of executive power as being generally statutes and also remember the prerogative powers as this historical vestige, but there are these powers that are important to the Canadian system, which don't come from any statute, but rather are the residual powers that were afforded to the monarch before parliament. And then you want to think about cabinet, and you want to think cabinet is the advisors, the ministers who act with the prime minister and make high-level decisions, fundamentally political entity. Their decisions are shrouded by this cabinet confidence and so it's this political entity who's also overlapped with the legislature because these ministers are also members of parliament and they sit atop the executive hierarchy and then you want to finally think about these ideas of um, the neutrality of public servants and that despite the fact that there is this political entity that sits atop the hierarchy the actual rank and file are expected to act in a neutral, apolitical manner and not criticize the government. So that wraps up our discussion of chapter eight. We're gonna move on now to chapter nine and talk about the courts. And while I had initially said I would do both of those within the same podcast, I think I'm gonna break this up to keep the episodes a more manageable length. So we'll move on to the next chapter and talk about the courts in the next installment of lecture two.